Good afternoon, everyone. In today's sermon, I want to continue our discussion of the Messiah and the throne of David with the subject of Solomon's era, and specifically in this sermon, we'll be focusing on Solomon's wisdom. In certain respects, Solomon's kingdom was a type of the kingdom of God under the reign of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, which is yet future. And as we proceed, we will see how some of that is reflected in the wisdom of Solomon. In previous sermons, we've discussed how in David's reign, the Philistines were subdued and the remaining Canaanites were driven out of most of the land God had allotted to Israel. So where did those people go, those people that were driven out, the Canaanites? One answer as a point of interest is that they went to what is now Morocco, at least some of them did, which is in Northwest Africa. Dr. Barry Fell in Saga America quotes several Greek and Arab historians who state, quote, that the Moroccans are descended from migrants who came from Canaan in Phoenicia, and they, that they originally left their Phoenician homeland at the time of the wars of the Hebrew king David. Now, a couple of things to notice about this quote, and by the way, this is a, this is a tradition from the Moroccans themselves, that's who they believe they are. And uh, notice in this quote that Canaan the land of Canaan where Israel was living is identified here as part of Phoenicia. And as we've mentioned before, Phoenicia was originally a, a, a term that was applied to the entire east coast of the Mediterranean, the, the, the countries and cities along the east coast of the Mediterranean where the, not only Tyre and Sidon were, but also where Israelite territory was. And in this quote, Canaan, the land of Canaan, which these people fled from, is part of Phoenicia. They fled and the Israelites replaced them where they fled from. Now, neither the Hebrews nor the Canaanites called themselves Phoenicians, but that's how they came to be known by other nations, and that's important in discussing Solomon and David and what happened to Israel during that era. As a result of Israel's hegemony over the Near East, which occurred with the conquests of David, Solomon's era was an era of peace. As we read in 1 Kings chapter 4, beginning with verse 24, 1 Kings 4 and verse 24, for he, that is Solomon, had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from Tifsa even to Gaza. The river being spoken of here is the Euphrates River. Tifsa is a place, a city which was located on the upper Euphrates. And so it goes on to say, on this side of the river from Tifsa to Gaza, Gaza was an area in southwest Palestine where the Philistines still had some territory, though, though their territory had shrunken a great deal during David's reign. 
namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him, and Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree from Dan as far as Beersheba all the days of Solomon. Dan would, would be the northernmost tribe of the tribes of Israel. Beersheba, Beersheba was near the southern border of Israel at the time. So there was peace in Israel and Judah. And notice there, even though it was a united kingdom, they are mentioned separately here in this particular passage of scripture. When Solomon was inaugurated as king of Israel, God appeared to him at Gibeon, where the tabernacle of Moses was at the time. And God asked Solomon what he would desire. As we read in 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning with verse 5, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You've shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of David, my father, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you from among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as your father walked, then I will lengthen your days. So in essence, God told Solomon that he was to be the wisest, the most brilliant man alive and the greatest of the kings of the earth during his days. That means he would be greater than the kings of Babylon, of Assyria, of Egypt, and of any place else on earth at that time. The scriptures teach that wisdom and knowledge come from God. Paul wrote that in the Father in Christ, in Colossians 2 and verse 3, in the Father in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2 and verse 3. And we're told in Proverbs 2 and verse 6, Proverbs 2 and verse 6, that God is the source of wisdom. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And so we read in 1 Kings chapter 4, beginning with verse 29, 1 Kings 4 and verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding. 
and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Now, this is, this is a pro profound statement. One can just read over this hurriedly and not really think about it and miss the impact of what is being said here. This says that Solomon's wisdom excelled all the wisdom of all the men of the east. That would include the men of Babylon and, and other locations to the east, Arabia and so forth. And his wisdom excelled the wisdom of Egypt. Now, Egypt was a very uh, advanced culture and society, an ancient culture, with a great deal of uh, knowledge in various fields. But it says that Solomon's wisdom ex exceeded that, the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. And uh, some of these men are mentioned in the Bible, I believe some of them were Levites, two or three of them. Others, we don't really, as far as I know, we can't identify them now, but evidently they were famous in their time and Solomon was more famous and wiser. And it says his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds, of creeping things and of fish and men of all nations. From all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So he became a prodigy. He became uh, evidently the most famous person on the earth at, at that time to the point where kings from all over the world came to hear and see. Now, the word wisdom, the word translated wisdom as it's used in the Bible, does not imply only the ability to judge wisely, but it also includes technical and scientific knowledge, the knowledge of how things work and of how to build and accomplish whatever needs to be done. When God instructed Moses, for example, to build the tabernacle, God said to Moses, as we read in Exodus 31, beginning with verse 2, he said, See, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for the for setting and carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I indeed, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all who are gifted artisans. 
that they may make all that I have commanded you. So God gave special gifts of wisdom to the people that were to build the tabernacle and the furnishings of the tabernacle. In Psalm 104, we read of God stretching out the heavens, laying the foundations of the earth as the creator. We read of him creating life upon the earth, of causing vegetation to grow to provide for the needs of man and beast. We read of him governing the motions of the heavens. And in verse 24, it says, Psalm 104, verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. So again, wisdom is not just making wise decisions in an administrative sense, but it is goes far beyond that into virtually every aspect of knowledge and understanding. Solomon was a writer of prose, of poetry, and of song. He was a biologist studying plants and animals. He no doubt had a knowledge of engineering as he was a great builder. Also, he understood mathematics, astronomy, navigation, trade, and no doubt other disciplines. According to Josephus, Abraham had brought to the Egyptians the knowledge of mathematics and astronomy. And the Egyptians developed advanced knowledge in these fields as witnessed by the Great Pyramid, which incorporates sophisticated knowledge of mathematics, engineering, and astronomy into its design and construction. And yet we're told Solomon's wisdom exceeded that of all others who had come before, that his wisdom exceeded the wisdom of Egypt, which is astounding. In many ways, the technology of the ancient world of Abraham and others who lived in his era and even before was highly advanced, contrary to the opinions of many. Their uh, knowledge of and understanding of technology and science was far advanced beyond what is generally understood. Cyrus Gordon in his book, Before Columbus, states that in the available knowledge of them, ancient cultures exhibit, quote, a high development of the exact sciences and technologies. Now Cyrus Gordon was, is uh, no longer living, but he was uh, very accomplished uh, archaeologist and historian, and uh, he said that the ancient cultures exhibit a high development of the exact sciences and technology. Among these were trade and accessing raw materials, including metals by way of long-distance travel by land and sea, this travel was intercontinental and transoceanic, including voyages across the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And 
Some of this is documented in that book before Columbus, uh, as well as other sources. Uh, the travel was worldwide. It included the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, the Indian Ocean, virtually all of the world's oceans were tra uh, transversed with perhaps the exception of the Arctic, even though uh, ancient maps indicate that uh, the ancients had a considerable knowledge of the uh, poles, the polar areas, the south, North and South Pole, and the geography involved in those areas. To accomplish these things involved high-level navigational skills and knowledge of astronomy and geography. The ancients possessed skills not only in agricultural sciences, but also in ceramics, stone cutting, and metallurgy, domestic, urban, and naval architecture, and also literature, music, and even medicine. And this in turn required leaders adept at organizing society effectively to produce people skilled in and able to perform in various disciplines. And that in turn required education, training, laws, regulations, and efficient administration. Ancient culture was not a bunch of uh, people who were half apes dragging their knuckles on the ground, as many would have us believe. They were not ignorant country bumpkins that were limited to a, to, uh, a few farmers. They were, in many cases, highly skilled people expert in many fields of knowledge and technology. However, as time went on, in the periods of Greek and Roman dominance, much of the ancient knowledge was lost. And even more so, more of it was lost in the so-called Dark Ages of Europe, which followed on the heels of the end of the Roman Empire. And so, we get to the point in the Middle Ages where people thought the earth was flat and they were ignorant of all kinds of uh, technical and scientific knowledge that had been known in ancient times and th that had to be rediscovered through a gradual process. It took hundreds of years. According to the scripture, the apex of that ancient knowledge was reached during the Solomonic era. And Solomon was, in a sense, the embodiment of that ancient knowledge. All the kings of the earth sought the wisdom of Solomon and brought him presents. And when we realize the extent of his wisdom and knowledge, we can understand perhaps why they would want to do that. We might ask, is this an exaggeration where it says in 2 Chronicles 9 and verse 23 or 24 or both of them, I'm not, I have both verses written down here, I'm not sure which one this is, but perhaps it's both of them. But it says, all the kings of the earth sought the wisdom of Solomon and brought him presents. So we ask, is this an exaggeration? 
did kings from all over the earth literally seek out Solomon to hear his wisdom? Would that, would that have even been possible? First Kings 11 and verse 3 tells us that Solomon had 700 wives. Why would anyone need 700 wives? Perhaps many of the wives were a result of foreign kings to gain favor with the king of Israel by offering a daughter to be one of his wives, as Pharaoh had done. And this was a practice that uh, was, was uh, current at that time to marry into a royal family if you wanted to have influence in that family. In fact, it's been done in much more modern times as well. Many of the kings of Europe, for example, intermarried, their families intermarried uh, so they could have influence in various countries. And that's an ancient practice. But he had 700 wives. I don't think there are even 700 countries on the earth today, 700 separate uh, countries. There are at least two or 300 or more than 200, I believe, but not 700. But very likely many of these wives were the daughters of rulers from various places. In a previous sermon, I mentioned the alliance between David and Hiram who was king of Tyre and who had hegemony over the city-states along the east coast of the Mediterranean in what is now Lebanon. And these city-states are identified with the name Phoenicia today. And these so-called Phoenician city-states shared a common language with Israel. The Phoenician language could as well be called Hebrew because they were indistinguishable at the time of David and Solomon. And in fact, the Israelite nation was the dominant nation in the area that spoke the so-called Phoenician language. And uh, the Israelite population was far more numerous at the time than that of the coastal city-states to the north. Soon after assuming the throne, Solomon sent a message to Hiram, king of Tyre. We read about in 1 Kings chapter 5, beginning with verse 5. 1 Kings 5 and verse 5, it says, Behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, He shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say, for you know there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. Sidon was another city over which Hiram had hegemony on the coast of the Mediterranean. So it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over his great people. 
Then Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the message. And by the way, this, uh, this letter was written very early, evidently during Solomon's reign. So he already had, even at that time, a reputation for great wisdom. And uh, so uh, Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I've considered the message which you sent me, and I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and cypress logs. My servant shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. I will float them in rafts by sea to the place you indicate to me and will have them broken apart there, then you can take them away, and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. And Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of pressed oil. Thus Solomon gave to Hiram year by year. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty together. Then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men, and he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts, and they were one month in Lebanon, two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. So uh, there was a labor force that consisting of Israelites that were sent to the forests of Lebanon to help cut this timber and ship it down to the sea and then on down to uh, the uh, coast of Israel. And uh, they rotated uh, monthly uh, 10,000 a month to provide a labor force for cutting timber. And in return, Israel supplied food for the coastal city-states. Israel was the breadbasket of the area. Lebanon, was, uh, or the, the area called Lebanon, was essentially covered with forest. And uh, that's why we were there, they were cutting the timber up there. And. Uh, so the population was concentrated just in those cities along the coast. And Israel provided much of the labor for the cutting of, those, of that timber, indicating that they had uh, more resources in terms of labor than the Phoenicians or the uh, city-states did. And Israel was allied with the city-states, Israel being the senior partner with greater territory and a much greater population. We read in 1 Kings 4 and verse 20, 1 Kings 4 and verse 20, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms of the river to the land of the Philistines, the river again, in this case being the Euphrates, as far as the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So notice that Israel and Judah had a, a great uh, amount of people, number of people, a huge population, as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude. 
God had promised Jacob or Israel in Genesis 32 and verse 12. Genesis 32 and verse 12, God had told Israel, I will make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. As this population grew, it had to have room to expand. And we might ask, where did these multitudes of people go, this burgeoning population? And actually, there are several answers to that question. And one, is, one answer is that history records that the so-called Phoenicians, otherwise known as Israelites, as well as citizens of the city-states along the coast, established colonies various places in the Mediterranean and on coastal areas of the Atlantic Ocean. Now we have a map here uh, <clears throat> on, on the screen, and that map shows the uh, western end of the Mediterranean up to the, you see the strait, what's called the Strait of Gibraltar now. That line going across the Mediterranean there is uh, a, uh, a line representing navigation between the eastern end of the Red Sea and navigation across the Mediterranean through the Strait of Gibraltar and, and to the uh, western coast of Europe along the Atlantic and the western coast of Africa along the Atlantic where there were colonies established and cities established by the so-called Phoenicians or the Israelites. And uh, they settled in those cities and uh, spread out eventually to large areas in North Africa and Spain, especially. We read, this is a quote from uh, the book of the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel found by Stephen Collins. And uh, it states here in this book, the Phoenicians planted many colonies wherever their navies sailed. Many Phoenician colonies were located in Mediterranean Africa, Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, Spain, and the coast of Morocco. Morocco is, <clears throat> if you look to the left side of that uh, image there of the coast of uh, Africa, Morocco is on the net northwest corner. That's where Morocco would be located, of Africa. And uh, he goes on to say George Rawlinson. George Rawlinson was a historian who wrote a book about the uh, Phoenicians. George Rawlinson adds that in the space of about 300 years, from 1100 to 800 BC, Phoenician colonists occupied all the most eligible of the mid-African sites from Leptis Magna to Hippo Regina, which is 400 miles further westward. This period of heavy Phoenician colonization directly coincided with the period of Israel's dominant role in the Phoenician alliance. This strongly indicates that most of the 
Phoenician colonists were Israelites, end of quote. Not only did people from Israel travel to these uh, outposts along the, the coast of the Mediterranean and, and the uh, Atlantic, Eastern Atlantic, they traveled also to the Americas and they established settlements in many places in what later came to be called America. There's abundant evidence of this, which is documented in such books as The Lost Ten Tribes of Israel, found by Stephen Collins, the books America B.C. and Saga America by Barry Fell, and Before Columbus by Cyrus Gordon, along with other sources that you can consult that uh, document these settlements. And they took their language and their customs with them. They left inscriptions and they left traces of their presence in many locations to which they traveled. Phoenician, in other words, Hebrew inscriptions dating to the era of the Israelite kings, which was from, uh, uh, from about, uh, well, in the 11th century BC to the time of the Assyrian conquest that led to the deportation of the last of the Israelites in 721 or thereabouts BC. Uh, there have been a number of inscriptions dating to that era from such places as New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Iowa, Oklahoma, and elsewhere in, in North America. A version of the Ten Commandments in Old Hebrew has been found engraved in rock at Las Lunas near Albuquerque, New Mexico. Dr. Barry Fell estimated the inscription may date to about 1000 BC which would be in the era of David and Solomon. But the date is not certain for a couple of reasons, but uh, that's, uh, that's the best guess. A similar inscription of the Ten Commandments was recovered from a burial mound in Newark, Ohio. This is from the book Saga America by Barry Fell. <clears throat> in 1 Kings, 10 verse 22, 1 Kings 10 verse 22, it says the king, meaning Solomon, had merchant ships at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory apes, and monkeys. So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Now all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses and mules at a set rate year by year. So it says that people from all over the earth came to visit Solomon, to establish a relationship to hear him, to gain knowledge from him. In a way, it's similar to 
great universities in places like uh, Britain and the United States in uh, the modern era where people from all over the world have sent uh, students to be taught at those universities. Solomon had that kind of knowledge and impact just by himself. Solomon had ports on the east coast of the Mediterranean and other ports along the coast of the Mediterranean at the Strait of Gibraltar, which we see on that map. And uh, if you want to put the other map on the other end of the Mediterranean up there, that, that is the east coast of the Mediterranean, the blue area there, uh, bordering the, the, uh, the, the beige, which is the land area. And you probably can't see it very well on that map, but, but it, shows, it shows the uh, trade uh, route of Solomon. In fact, this, uh, this map is uh, called, is titled Solomon's International Trading Networks. It's from the, from the New Moody Atlas of the Bible. And this particular map is titled Solomon's International Trading Networks. And it shows a, uh, a network of uh, settlements along the Mediterranean, as I said, the, the uh, east coast of the Atlantic. And it shows that uh, ships from Israel and other places along the coast Tyre and Sidon sailed to these other locations as part of Solomon's trading network. And you can't see it, I don't think, very well, but along the, uh, along the coast there are some little black dots, and those are locations of ancient shipwrecks shipwrecks from ancient times, perhaps dating back to the time of Solomon or somewhat later perhaps. But <clears throat> most of those black dots are along the coast of Israel. Solomon had another fleet which was based on the tongue of the Red Sea at Ezion Geber. And that's also shown on the map the uh, the body of water that you see on the map uh, going up to uh, on the left side there, I believe. or maybe it's the right side. Anyway, uh, I believe it's the left side, but it uh, <clears throat> is the location right at the, the tip where the land, the water meets the land there at the northern end. It uh, is where Ezion Geber was, and it's where 
Solomon's southern fleet was based. We read in 1 Kings 9, verse 26, beginning in verse 26, 1 Kings 9, King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elot on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom, that is the land that had belonged to Edom, but uh, they had uh, been defeated and Israel absorbed that area. Then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea, to work with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. Now, the, the location of, of Ophir is uh, disputed, but uh, on that map, it's located in Arabia down about midway down the uh, Red Sea there, which, it, which again, you probably can't see it very well, but that's where it would be located according to that particular map. And uh, it says they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. And uh, as we read, they also went many other places on voyages that required three years to complete. Now, I mentioned in a previous sermon the modern type Bessemer furnace at a huge smelter in the area of Ezion Geber, the only one that existed in the ancient world of that uh, size and type at the time of David and Solomon. And there was also a canal that linked the Red Sea with the Mediterranean that had been built by the Egyptians. So traversing from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea was possible through a canal similar to the Suez Canal that exists now. And you might want to put that other map up there. That, this is a map from the book uh, Before Columbus. Okay, yeah, the, the area, the dark area there is, is uh, where Solomon had direct rule from the Euphrates down to the border of Egypt and uh, the uh, location of Ezion Geber would be on the right tongue there from our perspective of the Red Sea. But you can't see it again too well on this map, but there is a line showing a canal that existed in ancient times and, and many believe at the time that we're talking about, uh, there's a line that shows a canal that was uh, constructed by the Egyptians from the Red Sea to the other tongue of, uh, from the uh, Mediterranean to the other tongue of the Red Sea. And then it would be possible to go from there around the land area and back up to the place where the smelter was at Ezion Geber. And uh, this map uh, to the left of the dark area there, you see uh, three lines coming out from the coastal area and pointed eastward. That is labeled um, Well, I can't read it, uh, but anyway, it, it, it is uh, 
it is designates the uh, sea routes of Solomon's trading empire similar to the other map. Now you also might notice on that uh, dark area there, it doesn't show the highways that ran through that part of the Near East, but there were several major highways that linked Africa and Asia that went through that area. These were major trade routes between the continents, and all of those trade routes were controlled by Solomon. And so those trade routes, both the seagoing trade routes as well as the trade routes that were land-based, meant that Solomon could accumulate massive riches and wealth by utilizing and controlling those trade routes. Besides being allied with the Tyrians, Solomon was also allied with the Egyptians through his marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh. We read in 1 Kings 3 and verse 1, 1 Kings 3 and verse 1, Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Evidence exists that Libyan crews from Egypt and Hebrew-Phoenician crews sailed together at times. There was a tripartite alliance with Israel at the head of the alliance and Egypt and the Tyrian cities were also allied. And these were the major seafaring nations as well as the major land-based power uh, of the era. And uh, evidence that crews from Libya, Libya is to the east of Egypt proper, and uh, it was uh, an area that was uh, controlled by Egypt to a large extent in ancient, in ancient times, and uh, they drew many of their uh, sailors from Libya. And uh, Libya had a, a, a somewhat uh, different language from Egypt. It was similar to the Egyptian language, but it also was distinct in certain respects. And uh, so reading uh, or writing Libyan and uh, Egyptian would be somewhat similar, but also different. Stella, which is basically just a, a rock that has engravings on it, found in Iowa contains joint inscriptions in three languages. These languages are Iber Iberian Punic, which is a dialect of Hebrew spoken in the Western Mediterranean by Hebrew slash Phoenician colonists, ancient Libyan and Egyptian. These three languages are on this stella that was found in Iowa. And Dr. Barry Fell 
who's an ethnographer, believes that the stella indicates Iberian speakers were living in Iowa in the ninth century BC. Iberia is uh, basically indicates people who were of Hebrew descent. And uh, <clears throat> ninth century BC would be just after the time of Solomon. And this, uh, it's very likely that this alliance, this tripartite alliance continued through the era of the Northern Kingdom to the, to the time that the Northern Kingdom collapsed as it was overrun by the Assyrians, which would be from the, from the 11th century basically to the 8th century. Evidence has been found that Egyptians also at the same time as Solomon were exploring the Pacific. And according to one source, the Egyptians roamed the Indian and Pacific Oceans for gold about 1000 BC, which is the era of David and Solomon. So there were voyages of exploration going on during that era through all the world's oceans, pretty much all of the world's oceans, if not all of them. And we read again, quoting from Collins' book, Ten Tribes, the, the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel Found, quote, with great joint power, no formidable enemies to challenge them, Israel, Phoenicia, and Egypt could devote their resources to peaceful pursuits, such as worldwide exploration and colonization, end quote. So Solomon's fame could have literally been worldwide. And king, kings or rulers from far-flung places on the earth, including places in the Pacific Ocean, North and South America, as well as other places, India, even China, kings and rulers from all of those places could indeed have sought out Solomon, as the Bible says. Stephen Collins suggests that one important development that can be attributed to Solomon is the invention of the Hebrew alphabet. The word alphabet, our English word alphabet, actually comes from the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph and Bet, or Beth as it could be pronounced more commonly be pronounced uh, bet. Aleph and bet are the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and that's where the term alphabet comes from, those two letters. The historian George Rawlinson is quoted as saying, quote, letters, if not their actual invention, received at their hands, that is the hands of the Phoenicians, modifications and improvements, and are traceable to are traceable in all the alphabets of civilized nations of the present day. So English uses that alphabet. Nearly all modern languages, with a few exceptions, use it.
and uh, it's said to have originated with the Phoenicians. Again, remember that Phoenicians includes the Hebrews, the Israelites. And it does appear that the Hebrew alphabet was standardized and diffused at the time of David and Solomon. Collier's Encyclopedia cited as follows, quote, the alphabet seems to have originated in a single region and to have spread from there. It appears in perfect form in inscriptions from Phoenicia at the end of the second or the beginning of the first millennium BC. That's the era of the United Kingdom, the era of, of David and Solomon. And so it's perfected form, it's uh, more developed form is traced to the time of David and Solomon. However, Solomon did not invent the alphabet. He did not invent the alphabet, but he may well have had a hand in its final development to a standardized form and almost certainly had a very strong influence on its diffusion to other areas of the world. And it spread from that area you're looking at on that map to the rest of the world. Now the Bible tells us that God wrote the words of the law on tablets of stone. We read in Deuteronomy 4 verse 12. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 12, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire Moses was speaking to the Israelites. You heard the sound of the words and saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. He wrote them on two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. Now, God could have written them in Egyptian hieroglyphics, or he could have written them in cuneiform script, but it's far more likely that he wrote the commandments in Hebrew using the Hebrew alphabet. A scholar named Douglas Petrovich has done groundbreaking research in translating several inscriptions from Egypt, Sinai, and Israel some of which date as far back as the 19th century BC. Some of them date to near the time of the Exodus from Egypt. And these uh, inscriptions are written in a script that Dr. Petrovich calls the proto-consonantal uh, script, script, which, as in his words, which is, is, which universally is accepted as the world's oldest alphabet, proto-consonantal script. Now, in the Hebrew language, uh, originally only the consonants were written. That's why it's called the proto-consonantal script because it is an early form of the Hebrew uh, alphabet. And... Uh, he, Dr. Petrovich, has written 
uh, somewhat extensively on these uh, inscriptions. In fact, he wrote a book about them. And uh, it's interesting that uh, in these uh, inscriptions, some of the people named in the Bible are mentioned by name. For example, the, the name of Moses is mentioned, as well as some other individuals whose names we know from the Bible. Now remember, these, these inscriptions are on... Uh, are, are on uh, rocks, essentially, dating to before the time of the Exodus and much earlier. Dr. Petrovich believes that Joseph is probably the one that actually in invented the alphabet. And he was working with uh, some uh, preliminary uh, tendencies toward developing that script, but, but Dr. Petrovich believes that Joseph was the one who actually came up with the alphabet itself. And it is, uh, uh, the, the figures were uh, borrowed from Egyptian hieroglyphics, but they were made into a phonetic alphabet. And then the the, uh, the shape or the, the exact form of the figures developed and changed slightly over time to what is now the modern Hebrew alphabet. God evidently wanted a written language simple enough that it could easily be learned by a large population. Remember, at the time of Joseph, it was just... Israel and his sons and their families. Israel had not grown into a large population yet at that time. It was beginning to grow, but uh, it was soon to grow into a sizable population as God had promised to Israel. The Hebrew alphabet consists of 22 consonantal uh, phonemes or sounds based on the uh, consonant. And that provided the basis for a written language using those phonemes, those characters which, uh, which was associated with particular sounds. And that provided the basis for the written language which was the same as the Hebrew language that was spoken. It was the Hebrew language in written form. And uh, the book that uh, Dr. Petrovich wrote is called The World's Oldest Alphabet, Hebrew as the Language of the Proto-Consonantal Script. When God gave the law to Israel, Moses was told to write it down in a book. We read in Deuteronomy 31, beginning with verse 24, Deuteronomy 31 and verse 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, write these words for according to the tenor of these words, uh, uh, this Exodus 34 and verse 27, um, 
According to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and Israel. And the, uh, so he was told to write down the words of the law that God had given him on Mount Sinai, which was not just the Ten Commandments, but there were a number of ancillary laws that were given as well that Moses had to write down. That's why he was on the mountain for 40 days receiving the law, which he had to write down in a book. And uh, so obviously he had to have a language to write it down in. And so the book of the law that Moses wrote down was to be preserved by the priests of Israel. And it was to be kept, the, the, uh, the, the uh, you might say the original or the primary copy was to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And so we read in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 24, Deuteronomy 31 verse 24, so it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. Now, there's no evidence that I know of to indicate that that book was written in any other language but Hebrew. There's no evidence that it was written down in hieroglyphics or cuneiform or any other written type of script. Any future king of Israel was to write a copy of the law for himself and read it daily. As we read in Deuteronomy 17, beginning with verse 18, Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, it shall be when he, that is the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this book, or this law, in a book, and from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. So each king was required to make their own copy of the book of the law. Now, I might mention that among the priests and the Levites, from that time to the, uh, to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, official, the official copy of the law was kept in the temple. Now, there were other copies that were made, but there was one official copy which was kept in the temple. And uh, I'm not sure how it was preserved through the uh, exodus into Babylon, but it was preserved because we read of it after the exodus being in the temple. And it was the, used by Ezra and Nehemiah and so forth. And it existed even to the time of the destruction of the temple where it was uh, secreted away. And uh, no one knows exactly where the Ark of the Covenant is now, but uh, that's where it was kept. Of course, there were many other, many copies of it as well.
but there was one official copy that was kept by the priests. Not everyone in ancient Israel had a copy of the complete book of the law, but they were instructed to write down the basic precepts of that law, the Ten Commandments, and keep them as frontlets between their eyes. We read in Deuteronomy 6, beginning with verse 6, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 6, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So they were to have at least a copy of the Ten Commandments readily available where they could read them, see them, look at them daily and have them in their hearts. That tells us that the Israelites were illiterate people who could read and write. And the alphabet, the existence of the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, the original alphabet greatly facilitated that. Now, pictographic rather than alphabetic writing is difficult to learn. There may be hundreds or thousands of pictographs that have to be learned in order to read a pictographic language like hieroglyphics or, or the Chinese language, for example, or similar languages. Phonetic spelling has made possible learning to read and write relatively easy and, enhan and enhances the potential for universal literacy. God wanted a literal people, a, a, a literate people, a people who could read his word, who could write literature and so forth, as well as read his word. He wanted prophets who could write down inspired uh, instructions or testimony later on in the history of Israel and people who could read what they had written. We read in the book Before Columbus by Cyrus Gordon the following statement, quote, the alphabet is the most useful single invention made by man throughout all his history. With the ancient cumbersome systems of writing like the Mesopotamian, Egyptian, and Chinese, popular literacy is impossible. The alphabet with such a limited repertoire of signs brought literacy within the grasp of whole nations and made universal education possible." End quote. So the alphabet existed before Solomon but it was in his day that it was perfected and diffused widely. The Encyclopedia Britannica says, and I'm quoting, uh, the Phoenicians rendered one great service to literature. They took a large share in the development and diffusion of the alphabet, which forms the foundation of Greek and of all European writing. The Phoenician letters in their earlier forms, and we can read Hebrews here instead of Phoenician, the Hebrew letters in their earlier forms are practically identical with those used by the Hebrews, the Moabites, and the Arameans of North Syria. They're not practically identical. They are identical. They are the same language. 
especially they were at the time of David and Solomon around 1000 BC. The Phoenicians, quote unquote, are credited with the development and diffusion of the alphabet. Solomon was ruling over the Hebrews, the Moabites, and the Aramaeans of North Syria at the time that it is speaking of here. And he was the senior partner in an alliance with the city-states of Phoenicia at that time. Given Solomon's interest in writing and literature, it's likely that he was interested in promoting literacy in his kingdom. In fact, we know that that's the case because it's reflected in the book of Proverbs, which is replete with admonitions to get wisdom, to get knowledge, to get understanding. Solomon was extremely interested in encouraging the population to become educated, to become a learned population. He was very interested in writing and literature, and so it follows that it's very likely that he was interested in promoting literacy, which we see evidence of, and this would have given impetus to the development and di dissemination of phonetic writing of the Hebrew language. And these ideas quickly spread as the Israelite empire was dominant in the Near East and the Mediterranean, and in fact was the most powerful nation on earth at that time. And we see the evidence here in these maps, some of it. Cyrus Gordon points out that the Hebrew alphabet was also tied to the calendar and a numerical system. He comments that the men behind the alphabet, quoting from the book Before Columbus, the men behind the alphabet, quote, far from being primitive, were advanced in science and technology. They fostered mathematics, astronomy, and time reckoning, as well as the techniques that make land and naval architecture, navigation, and cartography. They spread the principles of economics, law, and religion, as well as the arts of agriculture, animal husbandry, weaving, ceramics, and metallurgy. It was they who developed writing, the factor that makes the study of history possible. And history indicates that Solomon and his kingdom in their time were leaders in all the things mentioned in that list of things we just read. And that being so, it is a reflection of Solomon's wisdom, the wisdom that God gave to him. But Solomon, wise as he was, made tragic errors that drastically affected the future of his kingdom. He became an apostate and began to worship false gods. Now God had given a warning, even at the time of Moses, concerning the behavior of any future king of Israel. They were told in Deuteronomy 17, beginning verse 16, Deuteronomy 17 and verse 16, he, the king that is, the future king, shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Now Solomon did all of these things. He did all of these things, 
and his wives especially caused him to turn away from God in his heart. And so we read in 1 Kings 11, beginning with verse 4, 1 Kings 11 and verse 4. So it was when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not truly follow, did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on a hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So Solomon's reign ended in tragedy for his heirs and for his kingdom because of his apostasy. David wrote a prayer for Solomon, but this prayer transcends Solomon's reign and looks down through history beyond Solomon's reign to the time when the Messiah will sit on David's throne. It's in Psalm 72. Psalm 72, beginning with verse 1. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now we can see how some of these things were partially fulfilled in Solomon's era, but not by any means completely. Going on, it says in verse 9, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy, and he will save the souls of the needy. 
He will redeem their life from oppression and violence and precious shall be their blood in his sight and he shall live and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended.